Welcome to Disruption Now, our special segment, Disruptors and Innovators. I'm Rob Richardson. Pleasure to have you on this show. We are honored to have Kurt Perry, who is the president of Google Brands. But before we get to that, I want to make sure if you are listening to us right now on Apple Podcasts, if you're listening to us on Google Play, please, please subscribe and also write us a review. That's how more people know about us. That's how more people learn about us. We hope you do that. You can also go to disruptionnow.com. You can sign up uh, to get our emails to learn about things we have coming up, live events we may have, things we'll give away. You won't learn about those unless you sign up for uh, our our, our email list and go to our website. So hope you will do that. But for now, I want to talk about Kirk Perry, who is the leader of the of advertising for the largest advertiser in the world. Now, Google recently became a trillion dollar company, a trillion dollars. We throw numbers around, but just think about this for a minute. One million seconds is 12 days. One billion seconds is 31 years. One trillion seconds is 31,079 years. So when you're talking about numbers, you're talking about astronomical numbers. You're, it's a big effing deal, as Vice President Biden liked to say. He didn't say effing. You know what he said. But I am honored to have him on the show to get his insight, to hear his, his vision and how he leans on his faith and how he leads from values. It's a pleasure having him on, Kurt Perry. Hey, so hey, man, well, look. You are a Cincinnati boy through and through. You're a suffering Bengals fan like myself. Sky, skyline eating, you know, went to the University of Cincinnati, had a really great career here at, at, at Procter & Gamble, pretty much had a set path. And, you know, most people were very surprised that you left. You have a lot of friends here. How in the world and why in the world did you go to Google? <laughs> I like how you phrase that. How in the world and why in the world? Um, All for Cincinnati. That's such a Cincinnati way of saying it, but go ahead. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so it's... Um, it's a long story that I'll, that I'll summarize, hopefully pithily. You know, I, I was uh, blessed and fortunate to spend my most formative years in Cincinnati. I went to UC, as you mentioned. I came right out of undergrad to Proctor. Spent six years of my career in Asia, where I lived in Korea and Japan. And we moved back in 2003, had our fourth child. You know, we were, as we always say, we were growing, we were content, and we were planted. And when, uh, when AG Lafley came back in 2013, I remember sitting down with him and he was telling me he had a really bright future with the company. He was excited about seeing where things went, gave me a board mentor and a guy by the name of Scott Cook, who happens to be the founder of Intuit and uh, was on the board of Proctor at the time. So, uh, he invited me out with my leadership team to do a Silicon Valley tour, to be inspired by the Valley and what was going on there. And, and so the last meeting we had over a two day period was with Google. And during this meeting, the chief HR officer of the business side, we were talking with her about how they hire and the practices and who they hire and why they hire. And she said, well, as an example, we have the most senior position open in our, in our side of the business. Uh, and it's been open for a year. We just haven't found the right person. And I joked that I had one of those delusion of grandeur moments where I thought, eh, is she talking to me? You know, like the camera zooms in on you. And I, and I immediately dismissed that because I'm like, <laughs> she doesn't know who I am. And, but over the course of the next few days, it was really gnawing on me. And so I remember laying in bed one night a few days later and told my wife, I said, hey, you know, I had this, this moment in this meeting and this is what happened. And <laughs> I'll never forget it because she looked over me and she said, you have, she has no idea who you are. And you know, why is that a way of being humble? And, uh, and so she said, but 
if you feel like this is a Holy Spirit nudge, you should reach out. So I remember the next day I wrote her an email, said, hey, thank you so much for the meeting. It was fantastic. And oh, by the way, you said something. Said, you know, this, and if it wasn't directed at me, please ignore this and delete the email and pretend I never, never reached out to you. And so uh, the next day she emails me back, you're welcome, all the niceties. And the very last line was, we heard you were perceptive, dot, 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 smileys. And uh, we'd love to chat with you. And so that, that kind of was the beginning of the dance with Google. And it literally was like five months of back and forth. And it was probably the hardest, one of the hardest decisions I've ever made in my life because everything I valued and cared about was in Cincinnati. But, you know, and not to sound cliche or Pollyanna-ish, but really felt like God was calling me out here because everything in me wanted to stay and everything in me wanted to ignore this prompting to go because it wasn't because I wasn't leaving PNG to go become the CEO of Google. Right. I wasn't leaving to go to a cheaper part of the country by any stretch of the imagination. I wasn't leaving because I had friends out. I mean, there was right. nothing here that I was familiar with. I've and obviously heard really you talk was. about this. You've said you caught it like breadcrumbs from God. And that's kind of yeah. like you've seen things. Tell me what that looked like in this situation and why you felt there was your calling to go here. Yeah. You know, I, I think, I think the way God before Google was a trillion dollar company that they are now, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was only, it was only about uh, 400 billion then, but, um, but what was interesting is, is I always feel like God talks to me through other people and, and I hear him through others promptings. And I, and I believe that if something is consistent with the character of God, and it isn't contrary to what God teaches us, then it's probably from God. And, and sometimes I have a hard time discerning my own ego of what I want from what I think God wants me to do. Um, and, and in I this confess, case, I'm, I'm bad about that too, but go ahead. <laughs> I have really, a little bit I mean, of an ego. I think if we, uh, and I'll try to keep it under control, but I'm honest about it at least. No, I, I agree with you. And it's, it's such a hard thing to do because you know, the world calls you and, like, Oh, this must be from God. This is, you know, a big deal. And I could go do this and it's important. And, but really I've had a lot of cases in my life where in kind of in retrospect, it was more an ego driven decision than it was God led decision. And in this case though, there were so many, I could, I could, I could talk for an hour on all of the breadcrumbs, but I'll give you a couple examples. One was I had, um, given the weekend teaching at Crossroads, I think in early May of 2013. Crossroads is a church, a big church here in Cincinnati, so our listeners yep. know. Yep, exactly. Sorry, I should clarify that. Big no, church okay. in Cincinnati. That's the reason why I'm, um, that's why I'm here. And, uh, and so over the two months that I've been talking with Google, I thought, you know, God, because I really felt this push, like other stories leading up to that, of God telling me, Hey, this was a place I want you to go. But in this case, I said, you know what, I'm really going to test these guys because I don't think God really wants me to go. So I'm going to, so I reached out to, uh, at this point, the chief HR officer for the company was involved in the recruiting process as was the woman I mentioned earlier. So I said, Hey, you know, I said, I've been thinking about this and I just want you guys to see who I really am all the time. And this is an example of that. I gave this message at this big church in Cincinnati and I happened to be talking about building people in the context of how I work and how I think and how I operate every day. And, and I said, if this, if this isn't consistent with the values of Google, then we should probably stop the conversation now because you know, this, this is who I am. And I said, I can't leave it at the door every day. So I send it and I, and I hadn't heard back in a couple of days. I'm like, right. 
yes, you know, no, we're done. We're not gonna, we're not gonna have to go to Google. And then, right. And then I get a note back. Um, you will love Google. Google will love you. I hope we can make this work. And I was like, you know, uh, uh, like you hear all these, these stories about Silicon Valley and not being very faithful. And I thought, gosh, showing them faith in full, kind of in a full frontal way. They would be, gonna, they would be scared. That, that, your goal was to scare them off. And you got yeah, the app. That was, that was my, my goal was to show God that this wasn't the place for me. <laughs> and he showed me otherwise. And, and so, you know, that was a, that was a big one. And then my wife, Jackie and I were praying about this. And at the time, Crossroads Church that I mentioned was doing this series called Go Forth. And, and this particular day, the teaching pastor, Chuck Mingo, was doing his sermon on pioneers and settlers. And as he was giving his sermon, he was talking about the fact that some of us are called to be pioneers, where you're blazing a new trail, you're going to places you're not comfortable with, you're not familiar with, you're not sure of, you're not... And he was going through all of these characteristics and I'm sitting there getting goosebumps. And right. then he says, and some of us are called to be settlers after the pioneers go in and they get there. That's when we go in. But he said, God has a calling for both in his kingdom. And, but sometimes being called to be a pioneer is painful and it's an area, it's something you don't want to do. And, and so I remember my wife looking at me and had tears streaming down her cheeks. She goes, I think this may be God telling me I need to be more of a pioneer. You know, through like heaving breaths and hit church and, and many, many other things. But the kind of the pin in it all was a very close friend of mine named Jim Bechtold, uh, who was a former colleague at PNG. When I was really at the last stages of do I do this or not? Because I'd gotten a formal offer and I called him and I said, Jim, I'm really struggling with with this decision. And I gave him all the pros and the cons and where I was and how I really what really didn't want to do it. But I felt God urging me. And he said, you know, Kirk, as you're talking, I have this this vision in my head. And he said, the vision is, he said, actually is, is part vision, but part story. He said, my 16 year old at the time, son and I, his name was David decided that we were going to go skydive. He said, most normal people when they skydive, they tandem jump. He said, we decided we didn't want a tandem jump. We wanted to go solo on our first skydive. Oh, oh wow. Okay. That's yeah, one so way to do it. Like, yeah. <laughs> so that's fun. So he's like, you know, we had to go get certified. You learn how to pack your chute. You had to go through training so that, you know, the day we of our skydive, we go up and we're at 10,000 feet and the door of the plane opens and we go to get out and he said, I'm first and I've got my arms on the sides and, and the guy's going, jump. And he said, Kirk, literally, I am so nervous. My knees are shaking and I can't move. I'm frozen because I'm looking down 10,000 feet thinking what kind of a man takes a 16 year old son on a solo skydive. And he said, so. So I then, um, he had this hand on my shoulder and he said, I look back and it's my son. And he's like, dad, we've been trained to do this. God's got this. Just got to have faith. So he said, I just felt this piece. He said, I jump out. And he said, you know, David jumps out and he said, we're, we're free falling, but it's the most peaceful thing I've ever experienced. I'm, I'm looking down at the earth and it's just, it's amazing, beautiful thing. And I'm looking across miles and miles and miles and right. we pull our chute and it slows our descent and we glide to earth and we jump, we, you know, land safely. And he said, I just had this unbelievable feeling and rush over me of what faith really is. It's jumping when you're not sure. And it's knowing that God is there for you. Jumping when said, you're not sure. He said, I see you standing at the door of that plane, Kirk. You're prepared. God has prepared you for this moment and you're nervous. 
Cause that land you see is not the land you're familiar with. And you're at 12,000 feet and you're right. But, but he said, have faith that God has trained you and prepared you for this. And I remember like hanging up and calling my wife and saying, we're going to California. And she started crying. I started crying, but, but I could give you 50 other examples right. of where God just led us down this path. Well, I want to, I want to talk a little more about Google and then we can maybe get back to that. Sure. Um, Google's mantra is uh, don't be evil. Correct. Something, something along those lines. So, uh, you know, I always, when I hear things like that, I wonder how does one do that? Uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, a famous author, uh, mm-hmm. mentioned a, uh, a time from a small, uh, a small place from Pennsylvania, and they were mostly uh, all Christians, and they were all writing to the government to make sure no African-Americans moved there. And they premised their letter this way. They said, we're all Christian-going good people. We mm-hmm. just don't want any trouble and want to do well. And he phrased that to say that people don't often have bad intentions, but often in order to do evil, you have to believe you were doing good. I asked mm-hmm. this question in a way, mm-hmm. how do you make sure that you're not doing evil? Because I'm sure no one goes out and says, today, I want to be evil. Yes. <laughs> today, I want to do something bad. How do you actually hold yourself accountable? And how do you, make a, how do you build a culture around that? Yeah, that's a great question. I love the way you set that up because it's, it's interesting when I I came from a culture at Proctor where everything is written down 170 plus years of culture, everything's institutionalized, the PVPs, they called them the purpose, the values, the principles were codified the behavior expectations. Everything was written down. When it came to Google, it's very different. It was the overall premise of don't be evil was the key overriding guiding force of the culture. I thought, Oh my gosh, this makes me feel uneasy because (laughs) I'm used to this very linear written down culture. But what I found was that, you know, it's kind of that notion of there are organizations that are led by rules and there are organizations that are led by principles. And I think Google is very much a principle led organization that because there's so much trust in the organization that we will do no evil, that it is instead of it being mandated from on top and inspected, it is self-policed by the depths of the organization, which is a very interesting concept. And I, and like I said, I got there and I was very unsure, like, how does this work? And how does this happen? I have been literally blown away. And I had the senior leadership team of PNG out here, uh, my old peers, came out a couple of years ago and, and meeting with me and, and uh, CEO, the CFO, this question came up from David Taylor, who's now the CEO of P&G. And he's like, how does that work? And I said, it's this unbelievable desire to really do, do well by doing good. And, and, I, and it, are there mistakes made in every culture? Absolutely. But there is this overriding. It seems belief. to do that. Let me, if I don't interrupt you for a second, sure. it seems to do that. There must be something that the leadership does to extend some level of trust that is unusual. Sure. Let me give you a couple of examples where that happens. So my first week with the company, I got a letter uh, you know, from Eric Schmidt, who then was our wow. executive chairman. So I opened it up and it was addressed to Google dash all. And it was my board notes. And I was like, I started reading it. I'm like, oh my God, this is his presentation to the board of directors. How, how he, I, I think he made a mistake. He sent it to everyone in the organization. This right. has to be a mistake. And I asked my, my HR leader, I said, Hey, is it, should we let him know? And she goes, no, no, no. We sent it out a recorder. And at the very top, it says, do not forward, do not be evil. 
you know, this is for internal purposes only. It literally said that at the top of the note. And it was Eric's notes to the board. When I was at Proctor, I was on the operations committee for the company. I was one of the top 25 officers. I never saw the notes to the board. Wow. I was one of the 25 insiders of the company. And that was an example of how much trust the company puts in individuals. There is also, you know, so much freedom to push boundaries. And so the example I'll give you is as a Christian leader, you know, we have a very visible Christian community within Google, as do the gay community. They call themselves the Gaglers and the Jewish community. They call themselves the Jubilers, <laughs> the greatest names ever. But there is a very visible, open ability to be who you are at work. And that is not always the case. And so I believe by, by having very top-down examples of trust and very bottom-up examples of allowing people to be who they are. And then you know, when someone crosses the line, there are very visible consequences for crossing that line. We had the very public example a couple years ago of a guy named James Damore, the engineer who wrote that. Oh, I remember um, that. That's the only example I could think of, actually, from Google. Yeah. We're a very visible example of someone who, you know, leadership believed crossed that line and, you know, they were dismissed. And that's, that's just an example of how the company just isn't going to let people, you know, do things that are going to be against the values of the company. And other companies say that, but I truly believe that Google doesn't. I think personally as a leader, you know, my, my humble opinion is that the best leaders lead by example from the standpoint of they're vulnerable, they're genuine. And they are humble. And, and so I think vulnerable, genuine, and humble. And they, they come across as allowing people to see their faults. You know, I, I had a guy give me feedback yesterday when we had our quarterly business review. Um, they said, man, I love how you took ownership right from the beginning of, hey, this isn't where we right. needed to be. I, had to, I gave a couple of examples of things we needed to be doing better, but I owned it. Right? He's like, gosh, that's such a great thing to do. That was a good example for me. It's a simple thing. As a leader, you own it, right? Whether it's good or bad. But, you it's, say, but it's simple, but as you know, it can be difficult because emotional intelligence is lacking in a lot of things. Business world, political world, don't want to go down too far a rabbit hole, but it, it, it certainly is lacking in a lot of folks. I remember a story you, you, you told once that when you were on your way to be on the rise at PNG, I think you were went to South Korea, and that was the kind of the first time you had like one of your first moments of ego check. And... So talk about that moment if you can, because I think people need to hear that because you talked about the fact when you were there, you were just rocking it. And one of your colleagues said it would go better if you listened a little more. (laughs) (laughs) Gosh, I wish you wouldn't remember that story. Uh, No, kidding. No, I, uh, I'd been there about 30 days and newly promoted new country, new cat and everything was new. And so I left my wife and two kids at back in the U S at the time, for summer so I could get up to speed and then bring them over before school started. So 30 days in, I'm in the office by 7am. I'm there till midnight every day. I'm working on the weekends because, you know, I was going to work hard now, work smart later. And then 30 days in, there's a guy named exception. I'll never forget. Except in fact, we still stay in contact today, 22 years later, but he comes into my office. He shuts the door. I'll never forget. It was 1030 on a Thursday night. He's like, you are killing us. And I looked, I'm like, what are you talking about? My mind is racing. Like, what have I said? What have I done? You know, I was trying to get only been here 30 days. I haven't really made any big decisions. I haven't fired anybody. I haven't done anything weird. And uh, he said, look out there. It's 1030 at night. And the entire marketing organization is here. Why do you think that is? I said naively, well, because they're working. He's like, no, in Korea, people do not leave until the boss leaves. And he said, <laughs> 
and, 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 and I was like, oh my God. And I went into ugly American mode. I'm like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? That's so unprofessional. That's so childish, so juvenile. Right. You know, when they're done with their work, they should leave. And he looked at me calmly and he said, Kirk, we don't expect you to become Korean, but you can't expect us to leave 5,000 years of genetically encrypted code at the front door every day. Wow. Yeah. So don't expect us to be American either. Find the best of both and then make some adjustments and help us have better balance. Oh, that's so well stated. It's so common. He'd been with the company like 30, same, we literally started, he, he was brand new to Procter and Gamble the day I joined Korea PNG. And so, you know, from that day forward, one of the things I learned was, and this is a very biblical principle, you know, listen fast, talk slow, you know, like, like literally be a great listener and, and wait to respond. And I, I will tell you at that time, I was an awful listener. I, I thought I had all the answers. I'm like, Oh my gosh, how great am I? You know, I, I have all the answers to their problems. It was such a humbling moment because I, it, it was, a, it was an awakening for me because many other things that happened after that, that really kind of brought me to my knees as a human being, as a leader, as a dad, as a husband. But that was really the start of it where I started being much more introspective about things that I needed to do better. And certainly listening was one of them, but it also was a great example to me of someone taking personal risk and leaning in because, you know, that guy had a lot to lose and very little to gain of being the spokesperson for the right. marketing organization. Right. So no, this is a, this is a good lead. This is a good lead in for another question. Um, can you think about, I'm going to, since we're going to enter in our last kind of segment here, think about a time you've had a significant challenge and I think you were starting to get there. Uh, what you learned from that and how you became a better leader or a better person from it. So a couple things. Um, when uh, kind of leading from the Korea example, and this is, we moved over in 1997, my girls at the time were four and one major change. I mean, we literally left everything we knew behind. Uh, that was the most significant change of my life for sure. I think being married and being a dad, moving my family across the world. Two years later, it's 1999, uh, two and a half years later, I should say, um, Jackie and the girls are getting ready to go home for the summer. Um, you know, I was on top of the world. Here I am like 31, 32 years old. I'm fast tracking at Procter and Gamble. I feel like if I, my arm would have patted myself on the back many more times. And, uh, Jackie called, I was in New York. Jackie called me, um, said Carly, our oldest daughter who'd been waiting all summer for this camp didn't go because she was sick. Like, oh, that's weird. And I, and she was going to meet me midweek in New York. We we're going to do a long weekend there. I was going to back to Korea. She was back to Cincinnati and uh, she said, don't worry about it. The doctor said, if she's not better tomorrow, we'll get her checked out. So fast forward the next night I call and she said, well, it took her tonight. She's still sick today. And he felt something under a rib cage and he wants to do an ultrasound tomorrow. And I was like, should I come home? She said, no, 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 you, you know, don't come home. It'll be fine. He just thinks it's the flu and she's impacted. So the next day I was in a meeting. I'll never forget this day as it was July 20th, 1999. And, uh, I was in a meeting with time Warner that morning and I'd forgotten something at the hotel. And I went back to the hotel and this is the day be, days before cell phones actually worked across country lines. So I didn't have a cell phone oh, wow. in the U S and uh, I go back and my hotel lights blinking and it was my wife saying, Hey, could you call me at this number, a number I was unfamiliar with? And so I called her and no answer at this number. Oh, that's kind of strange. And I called my sister-in-law who was a childcare provider at the time. No answer. I thought even stranger. And then I called my mother-in-law and she answered the phone and she heard my voice and she started crying. So my immediate thoughts were, 
man, did, did something happen to Jackie or the kids? And my mind's racing. My father-in-law gets on the phone. He's like, I don't know how to tell you this. And my heart just sinks. And he said, uh, Carly has cancer. Oh, wow. I'm like, what? And again, it just didn't compute. I'm in New York. I'm away from, I, I, mean, I can't even tell you all the craziness that happened. But I make it back to Cincinnati and I walked in the, and they waited to operate on her. She had, she had uh, cancer on one of her kidneys. They thought she might have it on the other. We're going to have to tissue matches. And oh, it was, it was nuts. So she ends up having surgery the next day. Her kidney was removed. Uh, three weeks later, she starts chemo. A week after that, I come home from work. And at the time, we're living in Korea. So I didn't move us because we were supposed to move to Japan as soon as we went back that fall. Right. Had to move some stuff to Japan, some stuff back home. Um, three weeks later, she, so we start chemo. She, she goes into this tailspin where she's having these severe pains. Rush her back to the hospital after a week of being up 24-7. We end up finding she has a blockage in one of her of her colon, and they had to rush her down to surgery. And so Jackie and I are waiting in Children's Hospital waiting room in Cincinnati. Saturday, beautiful afternoon. The University of Cincinnati football team is playing. We're the only ones there. It's supposed to be a five-and-a-half-hour surgery. An hour and a half in, our surgeon walks out. He kicks the door open. His gloves on. That can't be And blood on him. We're like, my heart stinks. And he comes out. He says, hey, great news. She has a perforated colon or she has a blocked colon, but no perforation. So we clipped out a foot of her colon. We resected it because they told us before she went in there, they were going to have to put a colostomy bag on her. They were going to have to leave her incision open for two weeks to clear out the infection. Ooh. None of that had to happen. So he said, that this is the best news possible. She'll be recovered in about an hour. You can go in and see her. And I remember after that, and I had gone through these unbelievable emotions over the month or so that we had first found out and where we were to that point. Like, I can't even tell you the range of, I hated God. I I didn't even really believe there was a God. Uh, I was worried sick that my daughter wasn't going to make it. Yeah. I can't imagine that, that that, that pain as you must've felt like you're, you're helpless because you are, I mean, you are, it, it is honestly, Rob. I mean, I grew up blue collar, poor kid. Um, and, and I always felt like if I pulled myself up by my bootstraps, I, I wouldn't make it. I could, I could control things. And what I learned in that moment, in that period, there's nothing I could really control. I could do things to help, but ultimately I, I could control nothing. And in that moment, my wife and I, and, and this is something in the Bible where it talks about Jesus wept. And I never really understood that word wept. I'd never wept before, but I wept in that moment. I, I was heaving, like crying. And I, I sound like such a baby, um, but I literally was not heaving. Not a kid. I get that. And, and I, my wife looked at me and this is like the seismic moment where my life changed. And she looked at me and she, she squeezed my face with her hands and said, can you imagine how God felt when his son was hanging on the cross and his son screamed out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he didn't do anything because he loved us that much. And she said, we would have given our lives to stop Carly's pain. And we couldn't, it was like this lightning bolt for me. And it was the first time in my life I'd ever really understood God's love, but also the fact that, you know, and I talk about in that moment, I was transformed. It certainly doesn't mean perfect because I am not the guy I want to be any days of my life. I try to be better. That's probably how you know you were transformed. You're, you're aware of trying to get better every day. Uh, if you want to, cause we're, cause we're, I know we're getting short on time. Uh, that's a good, that's a good segue into a, one of your favorite quotes by a friend. Is it Chiwa? Am I saying that right? She watch in. Yeah. He has this quote that you really believe in. And he says, a product is simply an expression of 
who they are, which is, a, which is a value treasure in the kingdom. The kingdom measures in eternities while the world measures in quarters. Now, I'm going to replace that quote to say, the, I'm going to say the Wall Street for the world and say Wall Street measures in weeks, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. What's good like next week? How do you balance that out? How does Google balance that out knowing that that's your value system? That's not the value system of all your shareholders. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. How, yeah. Do, how, how, do you, how do you balance that out every single day? Because that seems to be the, the, the greatest challenge, your internal values with the external things that Wall Street or the world wants. Yeah, you know, there's, there's a great uh, quote by the Apostle Paul in the Bible that talks about standing firm in your faith. I think... You know, in a lot of ways, that's true in the world of business as well. Standing firm in your convictions that what you're doing is right for the long term. And while the world does measure in quarters, um, particularly Wall Street and weeks, as you as you point out, the reality is the best businesses in the world and the best organizations in the world really do things for the long term. They aren't. Now, I mean, yes, you have to deliver. Like I tell my team all the time, we live in a world of ants. You know, you must deliver the short term and you have to plant seeds for the long term. But where you get into trouble is when people either totally focused on the short term um, and then you're never really planting those seeds for the long term and they fall short over the long haul. I mean, how many people own Blackberries 15 years ago? True. How many own them today? Right. So did they plant the seeds for the long term that they should have? And the answer is no. On the flip side is companies that only plan for the long term don't deliver the short term. There's no long term to get to. And so finding that sweet spot, that balance, that fortitude to say, I've got to do the end, which in the, to me, the end is the hardest thing in the world to do because as a leader, you have to decide how do I allocate resources in the short term to make the numbers, but also have enough in the long term that I'm going to make sure I'm a sustainable success beyond the quarter of the year, the two-year mark, but for the hundred plus years that you want to be around. And I think Google, I mean, we've only been around 20 years, but if you look at the track record of this company, it is amazing to see the things that we have done over 20 years and we'll do hopefully for another 120 years. Yep. Two final questions as, as we wrap up. Uh, speaking about Google, Eric Schmidt, I actually recently listened to an interview with him speaking about Bill Campbell and Bill, one of Bill Campbell's, I guess, models was, you know, work the people, then work the problem. You have something kind of similar. You would say, you know, fo- people focus on the solution. Instead, you focus on the problem, which sometimes is the people, I guess. So, um, how, how does that practically work if one is focused on not the solution, but the problem? Like, well, what does that even mean to you? And then I got one final question. Yeah. So, so my philosophy, and it's always been this one, I learned it from some of the best leaders that I ever worked for is, you know, build, build everything around your team, not the other way around. And so a lot of management gurus will say, first develop the systems and the structure you want and then put people in it. I believe like a lot of sports coaches do that you feel the best team and build the systems and structures around the best team. So if you have two seven footers on your basketball team, you're not going to run an up and down game. If you have four guards, you might run an up and down game. And so I've always found the best talent hired ahead sometimes and not had roles for people that were really good because I wanted to field the best team. And in his book, good to great Jim Collins talks about one of the core principles of a level five leader is they focus first on the who then on the what getting the best team and figuring out who those people are on the bus so that they can help you deliver. So I overinvest in my organization because, you know, there's so many things you can do in the short term to deliver results, but if you don't have a great organization, it falls apart after you know a short period of time because you're never going to be able to deliver what you need to without the strongest team. It's kind of like 
building your core. It, it, it joke about the weightlifters who are huge yeah. in the upper body and have chicken legs. Um, if you're not working your lower body and your core, you're not going to be stable. And I view the organization a lot like your core. If you don't have a strong core, I don't care how great your products are. I don't care how great your systems are. You're not going to be able to deliver for the long term. True. That's how organizations work. The very best team that I've had, you know, we might have struggled at times, but we always persevered in the longer run because we had a great core. We had a great team of people who knew what they were doing and they were competent. They were confident. They made great decisions. Sometimes they were wrong, but you know, you're never going to have an up and to the right all the time. You're going to sure. have dips, but the greatest organizations are strong enough where they can overcome the dips and get things going again. Final question. All right. So you have a, you have an ad up. We're going to say a Google ad since you work for Google. You're the head of Google brands. It's the permanent Google brand ad that represents your motto. What is that? And why is that? About me personally? Yes. You. You know, my, my, my hope, honestly, you know, my personal mission is I want to help other people achieve their dreams. And again, I know it sounds so cliche and cheesy, but I, I can't tell you 25 years ago what my numbers were. I can't tell you 20, I can't tell you five years ago what my numbers were, but I can tell you the people I worked with every year and the people who achieved something great, whether it was a promotion or they decided to go to business school or they you know, decided to get married and take a step back from the career for a little bit of time to invest in their spouse or there's so many of those stories throughout my career that I think are way more meaningful. And if you help people achieve their dreams, they will in turn deliver great things. And, um, I hope people say that I put others ahead of myself and Hey, I fall short of that regularly, but you know, I, I want to be known as the guy who always put people ahead of himself. But because of that, people helped me achieve what it was I needed to deliver as a leader. Um, that's my simple, you know, kind of tombstone, uh, inscription that, that I'll, that I'll see one day that, you know, when I, when I pass away, I hope people that I've worked with 25 years ago come and say, man, tell, tell my kids stories about something that, you know, I enabled them to do because that to me is the greatest legacy, not what my numbers were, which are important, but really the kind of people you develop and the kind of people that you leave behind. Well, that's a good way to leave it. Kurt Perry, thank you for coming on Disruption Now. It was great having you on the show. Thank you, Rob. We'll talk soon. See you soon.